We ready? Please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 11. I'll be reading Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 44. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Lord Jesus, let us get the point this morning. Yes, let us see and taste the power and the goodness of the grace of the gospel working in us. Help me unfold what you that day knew what you were saying and meaning at that dinner table. And continue to mold us and to protect us from legalism to the glory of your name. Amen. The nastiest, the dirtiest, and the most destructive sin in the history of the church is legalism. There is probably no sin that is more tolerated and that is widespread in the church than legalism. Unrepentant adulterers or thieves or liars or the violent or drunkards, they are a stain on the church, but not more than legalists. Jesus had more conflicts with this group of people, the legalists, than he did with anybody else in his ministry. And it was not the prostitution rings or the thieves, or the liars who put Jesus on the cross. It was the legalist. And don't miss it. It was the legalist practicing their legalism that put Jesus on the cross. Later on, the Apostle Paul, throughout his ministry, found that the main enemies he had to fight were Jesus-professing legalists. In every city he would go, 
Is Paul gone? Good. Then they come in behind and infiltrate the church and teach. See, this problem, you can say of legalism, or I can just say it this way, this problem of downplaying the reality of the depth of our sinfulness in our nature, and thus downplaying the extent of the work of the cross, and the extent and the depth of the grace of God that flows from the cross, that downplaying of that is so central to the blinding of people to the gospel that Jesus throughout His ministry purposefully got in their faces. Purposefully made sure there was conflict that He could address it. Jesus could have healed on any day of the week, and He did, but He purposefully healed on the Sabbath in order to break these religious people's rules. When a Pharisee invites him for dinner, Jesus knows what's going on. He could have gone ahead and ceremonially did the washing of his hands before he ate. But he took the invitation in order to not do it, in order to provoke them. And when they questioned him, Jesus could have been polite. But instead, he blasted them for their their religious, arrogant, unloving legalism. This is what the Apostle Paul, a few decades later, would write in his angriest letter out of all 13 letters in the New Testament. Nothing angered Paul as a servant of God and an apostle of the Lord Jesus than the sin of that was infiltrating the church called legalism. Jewish legalism that says we accept Christ, now add to your faith in Christ. That's good. All these cultural, ceremonial laws. And if you don't, you can't be saved. This is what Paul says. I am astonished. Galatians that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. No, no, no. Not that there's another one. But there are some who are troubling you and they want to twist the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be damned. As I have said before, so I say again now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel different than the one I delivered to you, let him be eternally accursed. End quote. Legalism is not obedience to God. See, some people confuse legalism with an emphasis on obeying God's Word. Or God's commands. That's not at the heart of what legalism is. Okay, This is a real quick... Just put this on your refrigerator. 
God is never against obeying God. He's always against legalism. Being under grace does not mean that we are free to disobey God. It's not the definition of the gospel of grace. Neither is legalism equivalent to rules, other kind of laws that are not explicitly biblical. Like you might make rules up in your home. Can't find it in the Bible. Doesn't mean, oh, that's legalism. Necessarily. It might be wisdom. Same thing with the home of local churches. There may be rules or different cultures. It's not necessarily legalism. Just because it's not an explicit, can't see it in the Bible. That's not the definition of legalism. What is legalism? At its core, it's a heart. Let me just pause. Now, that heart may do lots of stuff now. At its core, it's something going on in the heart that attempts to find favor with God by what it does or what it avoids doing. I did this. Look at that. I came to church. God must be going, thank you. I really needed you to do that. Oh, by the way, here's your paycheck. I, have, I show favor on you because you acted. You did. Oh, the guy next to you? Ooh, no, no paycheck for him. He didn't do what you did. Legalists feel that and they like, yeah, he didn't do what I did. That's what's in the heart of a legalist. It is religious actions that do not spring from a heart of faith. A heart of trusting God. What He has said. His Word. The Gospel. His promises. It's something different than the heart of like a little child. Trust Daddy. Don't worry about it. We're going to get some food and we're going to eat. Oh, okay. You trust Him. Legalism are these religious actions that is not springing from that dependency, that kind of a heart. Let me say it this way. The law of God, here's here's some of those commands in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, we know it sums it all up. Well, why don't you just break some of that down? Okay, don't murder them. Don't bear false witness against them in a court of law. Honor your father and, and, and your mother. The, the law. And right, wrong, objective morality. Such a thing as justice and therefore injustice. The law of God that He delivered was always a law of faith. Meaning, if you hear the law, don't murder. Look at that. I went through my whole life and I never committed murder. It doesn't mean you actually even obeyed that law. The only way to truly be obedient to God is when something in your heart sees the goodness of God who gives it and you say, wow, you care about me. Okay, that's called a heart of faith. That's how it was always to be responded to. You know the books of Moses. 
He sends out the twelve spies. Two of them got it. Because two of them were born again. Two of them knew God said this. <laughs> we trust Him. Ten of them say, I don't know. The law was always a law of faith. Say it this way. When you obey God, it's like obeying a doctor. He gives you a prescription for your health. Sometimes to save your life. So you'll live longer. See your grandchildren. Will you obey the doctor? In other words, do you trust the doctor? Do you trust him that, here it is, this is all you got to do. Go fill this antibiotic. Okay, 100 years ago you'd be dead, but we got some stuff today. Go get it filled and start taking it like I tell you to, and you'll live. I don't trust him. So you don't take it, and you die. The law has always been coming to us creatures like a doctor's command or prescription. If you trust him, you obey. If you don't, what legalism is, is taking those prescriptions and turning them upside down into something they never were. A job description. Like, I'm the employee. God's given me a task. He's needy. He's an employer. All employers are needy. They're not out for charity. They're out to make money. And they hire you because they need what you can offer them. And they're going to recompense you. You're going to earn it. The law was never, ever intended that way. Let me give another illustration. The law was like a railroad track upon which God the Holy Spirit comes within and pulls you by generating faith in your heart towards the law. And you're just cruising down that metal. That's what the law is. And there's nothing to boast about when you understand, how am I moving upon the track? How is my faith there? Oh my goodness, God is even creating that. That's the law. What the legalists did, what these guys in our text, we'll see, did, and what we've been doing for 2,000 years here and there throughout church history, is taking the law of God and thinking, whoa, that would make a great ladder, and let's slam it up against the door of heaven and start climbing. And look at me. I'm climbing higher than my neighbor. You're not climbing right. This is what so angers God. And often, because of that ladder climbing, what comes with it? It sees, yeah, in, in, in the Torah, in the law itself. Numbers of laws. Like, look at that one. There is a way in which, as God's people and with the tabernacle, and with the temple, you are supposed to be cleansed before you enter. Okay. Or before you eat. And you can get two verses in the Bible on that. And what legalists do, oh, we like the rungs of the ladder that were a track, and they say, let's make a manual on how to keep those two. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had done. Or, you can just, down the road, some of you are familiar with some of our American church history. It's true. Fornication is sin. Don't do it. 
But then we, you know what? To protect us from doing that, let's make the law way out here. So, you know what? It slowly gets seeped in. You know, lust, pretty women, showing parts of the body. That's not helpful. And there's wisdom there. It isn't. But this is how legalism starts to work. Well, maybe make a law. Well, let's, let's just make sure that you don't wear skirts above the knee. It's wearing below. Well, you, but why stop two inches below? Why don't we go like my wife, see? <laughs> the, the one day she wears that dress. <laughs> All the way down to the ankle. And then it becomes encultured. Next generation. They don't even know why. They can't even distinguish between Jesus died on the cross and you certainly don't wear dresses unless they go down to the ankle. And they're confused. They can't distinguish. Dancing out. Some of you know, lots of denominations. I used to hear these stories in the 50s. Mike, the idea that you would ever, ever, ever dance or ever listen to secular music or, or ever, or ever, and you go on and on and on. The gospel slowly gets so muddled. It's lost. Let's go to our text. Verse 37, Luke 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked Him to dine with Him. Now, just real briefly, we've talked about this. A Pharisee is a regular Jew. It's not, these Pharisees are not the high class people like the Sadducees. Pharisees just came from your common people, but it wasn't all common people. Out of those common people, they started to move toward, I'd like to become one of those the separate ones. That's what Pharisee means. And they would go through this rigorous probation period of a year to see whether you're tithing right, you're doing all the ceremonial laws and observance correctly, much more than your standard run-of-the-mill Jewish person. Okay, This is who they were. One of them asked Jesus for dinner. Now, what we're going to see, do not confuse when you're reading the Gospels in the New Testament. These laws that Jesus will purposely break, do not confuse those with the law of God itself. So you see, they had, besides the written Scripture, the Hebrew Scripture and the Torah, the first five books, the laws of Moses, they had volumes of oral traditions. Now, if they're oral, how do we know what they are? Because after the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries, these traditions went from oral to finally being codified and written down. Let me give you just a taste, okay, on how you eat as a good Pharisee. Quoting from the Mishnah. The hands are susceptible to uncleanness. And they are rendered clean by the pouring over of them of water up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains clean unclean. If he poured the first water, you got this, right? Write these down. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand alone is clean. 
If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall to dry it, it remains clean. (laughs) Text. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So Jesus said yes. And as he came in, he reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Jesus was not absent-minded. He accepted the invitation precisely in order to deliberately not wash up before he started to eat. It was an in-your-face move. And when Jesus got the shocked look that he was looking for on his face, he launched into his speech in verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup. Other laws we won't read right now. You cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. Now watch how he just changed this. You can see the analogy. But inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Jesus knows they do not have new life in them when he says this. He says, you Pharisees are inwardly, at at the core of your hearts, greedy and wicked. He compares them, the outside of the dish, sparkly clean, cool. Can everybody see? Put your food in there and eat it. It's disgustingly dirty. He just said, all you... That the core of these guys' legalism is they really care how they think they appear to others. Jesus is saying, the God of creation, the God of Israel, Yahweh is concerned always first with your heart, with the inside of your cup. What is really stunning is that these guys who were so meticulous to give 10% of their earnings and their income and even of their garden herbs, those ones Jesus calls greedy. Why? Because He is revealing Not their outer actions. He's revealing their hearts. Now, you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. You don't get it. In other words, his point is the same point he made on another occasion that we see in Matthew 15. You hypocrites! 
Well did Isaiah prophesy when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see what he's saying? Their lip service, their songs were at odds with the internal workings of their hearts. Their freshly washed hands at the dinner here contradicted the dirtiness and the greed of their hearts. Their hearts toward God were not in tune with their giving 10% of all their earnings. That's what Jesus is getting at. Just as some who do not tithe, it's because their hearts are in tune with what they want God to have off the top of their income. What's is going to be implied in verse 42. But look at verse 41. Jesus goes on. But give as alms those things that are within and behold everything is clean for you. Now, alms are it's money and food that you give to those who are really in need. It's this kindness out of your heart that expresses itself in arms. But here's a question. What the heck is Jesus saying? Because the wording is really weird when he says, but give, well the translation of the ESV is as alms, but just more woodenly from the Greek. It's just, give alms those things that are within. And behold, everything will be clean for you. What's he saying? There are two grammatical possibilities, but without getting into all that, let me just give the rub of each. Is Jesus, when he says within, this, does this within, is it adverbial? Meaning, is it modifying the verb of giving? Which would mean, he was just saying, when you give alms, do it from your heart. Your inward being. It's possible. But, but I think what he means is give alms to the inward stuff. Meaning your inward stuff. That's what I think he means. It's not a big difference because both of them fit the context. But I think he's saying Pharisees, in this giving of alms, you, you should give to the needy and recognize that first and foremost it's your inward things that are really needy. In other words, give alms. Give attention to your character. To your caring. To love for God. When you do that, then your alms and your tithing, your little herbs, and everything will be clean. But as it is now, it's all vain. And now this sets up Jesus' woes. Woe isn't like, wow, that's cool. Woe is like really bad. For you, Pharisees, or legalist. Verse 42, look at the first one. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice 
and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So, see, first century Pharisee, there was no sincere Pharisee who ever knowingly gave less than what the Bible commanded. Now, the word tithe there is not a general word for giving. Tithe means 10%. You farm cows, you got 10 new ones, it means one-tenth, one cow. You got a hundred leaves of herbs, 10 leaves. You got $10,000, it means 1,000. That's what tenth means. It means one-tenth. That's what they do. Now, the big problem that Jesus brings up is that they are neglecting. They're doing that. And they're neglecting the much larger issues. They're neglecting the root of what would make their tithing acceptable. Clean, as opposed to unclean. What would make their tithing the manifestation of God's grace in their life? They're neglecting loving God and loving others. Just for example, what is he getting at? God in the Bible commands us all over the place to sing. Sing praises unto me. Sing praises. Just read the this. Okay, okay, here we go. There's a, there's a. If a person, as an unregenerate per- person, has never come to to see light in the in the in the Christ, it's hot. As they 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 word 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 obedience to instance to sing praise 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 praise. Jesus saying that stinks. That's not That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Finish finish with every other command in the Bible, whether it's singing, whether it's bringing your your lamb or your lamb or your grain offerings to the temple, or whether it's tithing. That's his point. These guys were great external tithers. But they turned the grace-filled command of tithing into a ladder. Into a job description in which they would exalt themselves. It is this legalism that brings Paul in Romans to, to say... You want to see sin in its greatest? Don't look at a drug house or even the cartel in Mexico. Look at what religion does with the precious holy Word of God. It shows itself as utterly sinful. The problem that Jesus says is that the Pharisees, right in front of him, he's eating dinner with him. Is they just don't get it. They just don't get God. They just don't get Micah. 
chapter 6, verse 8, which they should have gotten. Quote, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what Jesus is nailing them on. The point is, they just do not get Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, where God says through Amos, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So these guys in front of Jesus, they calculated their 10% giving down to the decimal point, even from their gardens at home. But when someone comes up to them in daily life in need, Jesus knows their heart. They either say or imply, get lost. Particularly you Jews who don't act as holy as we do. Jesus says the problem is that there is no genuine affection and love for God. And thus, no overflowing love for their neighbor. The Apostle John would later say it this way to us in 1 John chapter 3. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. This is what Jesus is doing at the table. Now, Jesus was very familiar with the words of the Bible. He is the Word. He was very familiar with Malachi chapter 3. Quote, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby... Put me to the test, 
says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So, Jesus is familiar with these texts. So after blasting the legalism, the unrepentant, dead hearts of the Pharisees, He was not going to do away with the power of God's grace working in born-again people's hearts. So He says, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love for God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You heard a strong intro that I hope you agree is really biblical. An essential theme in the New Testament against legalism. This heart issue. And there have been so many wrong-headed ways to fight legalism in American evangelicalism. Over 30 years of being a Christian, how often I've heard the kind of logic that says, we're under grace, brother. Grace, not law. Therefore, stop judging me for sleeping with my boyfriend. And and you think, what, what do people think the grace of God means? It just comes up. No, no, no. Grace means we're free to do anything we want. Really? You're going to live by your natural desires? It's as if they say, there's no standards. Grace. Not a book with truth and right and wrong. No standards that point to is genuine grace of Jesus Christ producing faith in you. Is there any evidence? No, 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 no standards of of that. You ever hear that kind of? Grace, the grace of Christ, the grace of salvation is a power. And grace is not the freedom to disobey God and live according to your sinful desires. That's not the definition of grace. As the Apostle Paul says, if you, professing Christian, live according to the flesh, that's his word for sinful desires that are natural to you, if you live according to their dictates, you will die. And in Galatians 5, it gets really hard. You live, just follow after. There's no battle. There's no struggle. Can let the fruit of the Spirit flow through me? Am I real? Am I real? Do I love Him? Is there love and joy and peace and kindness? But then he lists the works of the flesh. He says, you live by them? That's your guidance in your life and your pattern? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. No. That's not what grace is. Just live according to dictates. Grace is in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment, never perfectly, 
Never without sin, this side of the resurrection. But it is real. And it is the empowerment to walk according to the Spirit as a person who has already been justified, freed from the guilt of your sin forever, outside of yourself, by Christ's work on the cross. There are Christians who say, Oh, I'm free. Jesus, deliver me from my eternal just deserts. Grace. Okay, God. What can I do? I know. I'm going to give 2% of my income. I think this misses the point of what Jesus is doing altogether. Jesus is in front of the Pharisees and he says, Pharisees, you did the little things. But you so missed the humiliating things like loving others with justice and the love of God. You totally missed it. That's what he says. He wasn't saying the little issues like tithing are unimportant because the bigger issues are more important. It's not what he said. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What I'm going to do, I'm just going to, I'm going to give an extended quote that I think is pastoral wisdom from Pastor John Piper. It may go two and a half minutes, so listen. If you are prone to say that Today we are living under grace, not law. Tithing is part of the law. Keep in mind that Christ came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. So, what does a fulfilled tithe look like? What does more grace do to the minimum level of generosity in the Old Testament? What does more grace do to a believer's eagerness to support the work of God? What does more grace do to our confidence in God to meet our needs? I cannot see how more grace lowers the floor of generosity laid by the law. It simply raises the ceiling. In Deuteronomy 14.23, one of the purposes for tithing is, quote, that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Many of us have discovered that the decision to keep God first in our financial commitments helps us keep Him first in all our commitments. Just as the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, So obedience with the first tenth of your money is the root of much reverence and righteousness. Bringing God the first fruits of your income as a tithe is a constant reminder to you that everything you have is God's. The tithe does not mean this is God's and the rest is mine. The tithe means that this belongs to the ministry of the church and the rest is meant for a lifestyle of justice and love of God.
Tithing teaches real, nitty-gritty trust in God. If you don't bring to God the first tenth of your income because you don't think you can live on 90% of your income, then you are probably not trusting God in a way that honors His incredible promises. Tithing is a demonstration that you believe God's promises to add what you need if you seek Him first. First. End quote. Then he gives the second woe. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So Jesus gets to the heart of it. Legalists are those who love to be recognized. Hey, Dr. Righteous. They loved to sit up front. Especially those chairs that are kind of led this way, so you're looking at the congregation. They sought it. Legalists, they act. They give. They do. They teach for the bottom line reason of their yearning to be praised. That's what he's getting at. These Pharisees that Jesus was dealing with were so blasted serious. It's one of the reasons I think they could not stand Jesus. Jesus wasn't like them and it really bugged them. This guy preached to the commoners. He touched them. He played with kids. He laughed. He had a glass of wine. That's why they call him wine bibber. He just didn't seem to play their game. He didn't seem to be concerned about rubbing shoulders with those who are in the know or the somebodies in order to exalt himself down the road further in the religion. And it bugged them. It drove them nuts. Why? His point is oil and water don't mix. His point is seeking the praise of men just does not mix with faith in God. They can, not at the same moment and at the same time. They don't. This is how Jesus said it in John 5.44 where legalism, it is the enemy of walking in faith. How can you believe? That's faith. How can you believe, Jesus says, when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. See, one reason that God so hates legalism and and why it is that main reality that Jesus in His earthly ministry ran into and angered Him so much is not only because of the glory it takes from God at that moment, but because it's contagious. Because it spreads to others. And that's his third woe. Woe to you, 
For you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. Okay, well, okay if you're a first century Jew, you would get it offhand. But this is what's going on. See, for the Jews, and they can get it from the law of Moses, if they come in contact with a dead body or with a tomb, okay, they are unclean. They have to go through a seven-day ritual of cleanliness before they're able to re-enter the temple. They are ceremonially unclean. That's why the Jews in first century Palestine were really good at marking graves so that you know to go around them, to not accidentally get yourself defiled. That's the picture. Because death is always connected with sin. Death has come because of sin. This idea of sin and death in God's mind and in reality is very real, and so he gave them some cultural laws about that. So, and there's cleanliness and how you now get clean by ashes and washings, etc. Okay? So they know that. Jesus knows it right now. They're really perturbed. He didn't do the cleansing right according to them before he ate. And he looks at them in the face. And he essentially says, it is you Pharisees in your religion itself that are like dead people defiling the whole nation. That's what he means. You are like unmarked graves. People can't see it and they're getting defiled because of your ways, your actions, your modeling, and your teaching. Jesus' point then... And his point now is that the sin of legalism contaminates unsuspecting people. Many of you have stories. It contaminates the souls out there who yet don't believe in Christ because there are unbelievers who smell legalism better than many Christians and know they want nothing to do with their hypocrisy. And their ears, because of the likes of us, are closed. Legalism contaminates young believers. I don't know, we better come to Christ and they're genuine. And then there's a modeling, and many times a confused teaching. Look this way, act that way, do it this way, without necessary regard for the heart. And they don't even know what happened until they wake up eight years later by God's grace and get free. So as I close, here's a question. We're going to come back to this and next time we come back to this passage. And Luke, as Jesus is not done, it gets worse when a scribe is, that's a professional teacher, Pharisee guy, he's pretty, you're offending us. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll come there. But this morning before we go, how do we live day by day in battle with our own sinful desires that are clearly spoken against? Don't do that. Do this. But I have this desire. I certainly do as a sinner. And then the Bible says, don't follow it. How do we go about that in the daily Christian life? The answer is not by legalism. It's not by trying to add faith. Excuse me. Thank you. 
That was legalistic, wasn't it? It's not by trying to add works of obedience to your faith. It is living by faith in God's Word, commands and or promises. Which by definition, if you're a genuine Christian, that will mean you'll realize in your prayer, right now, God, I, I feel so strongly this sinful temptation. What do you do? You don't pretend. You say, God, please cleanse me. Let your word work. Let me get people in to help me. God, help my desires come in long with your word. Help, in other words, my heart to believe, to trust that you care for me in this command. You care for me in this direction. It is by understanding daily first the gospel of justification by faith alone. Jesus paid the price not for some of your salvation, for all of it, once for all. If you have come to believe in Him, to embrace Him, that you have that evidence that I'm one of those that got born again by His unsuspected mercy. At that moment of first faith, legally, apart from you, apart from your experience, you have been justified, meaning cleansed of all your sin, and that Jesus, that man born of Mary, his perfect human life is also put to your account. You stand on that, and then you don't go on to something else and do works. The same faith that by which you were justified is the same faith by which you are sanctified. You go on trusting in Him. When you see that your sinful desires are totally against the command here, you don't say, that's a job description, I'm supposed to do it. I did really good today. God likes me. You totally missed it. He's a doctor. He's a father who loves you. And he says, take this medicine. Let's go. And knowing the gospel, if you're true, he will see you through. That's the daily battle. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to close by just quoting some text from Galatians and say amen. And we're going to come back to this. This is how Paul, I think, counsels us by the Holy Spirit in this daily walk. Yet we know that a person is justified by Excuse me. Yet we know that a person is not justified, made right, acceptable to God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one, Pharisees, no one, will be justified. Paul goes on, and he was a Pharisee at one time. Paul goes on, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. For freedom, Christian! Christ has set us free! Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subject again to a yoke of legalism. Because through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness when Christ comes back. Why? Because in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what counts for everything is faith working itself out in loving others. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But instead, through love, serve one another. Because the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, we are desperate for hearts that are daily enlivened by the work of Your Spirit, meeting with the treasure of Your Word. May You renew darkened, hardened hearts. May You revive childlike faith in those of us who need that. Would You rest our hearts in that deep love of the knowledge of Christ as our substitute this glorious truth of being justified by faith alone and thus free free in the power of grace to pursue you with all of our hearts and overflow in loving others.